All right, you you start. All right, never start. You start. Hey guys, I'm Jeff, and this is Future Vision. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Nathan. This is Future Vision. Hey guys, I'm Jeff, and this is also Future Vision. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, we were we were going to use your recorder. Oh, really? I mean, we're into it now, so let's just let's no, just start. Hey guys, welcome to the Future Vision Podcast. This is Jan. Wow, that was really fast. Hey, what's up guys? Nathan here. Um, we're, we're here at the Future Vision Podcast, episode four. Hope you guys are enjoying it. This is how fast I normally talk, but today I'm going to slow it down a bit because I've I've been listening back to myself and I was like, I can't talk on mics. Aren't you already all. like a little nervous that you're talking too fast? Huh? Aren't you already like a Well, na- now I've already made myself really self-conscious. Yeah. And now I'm talking fast again. I know, right? So... Hope you guys enjoy yeah. racking the speed for the rest of this podcast. Yeah, thanks for listening in. Uh, if, if you've been listening to all four episodes at this point, I'm very impressed. You're probably my mom right now. Or your Jan's boss, apparently? Yeah. Shouts out? Shout out. Shouts out, dude. I mean, that's really impressive. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate that you're showing... You know, if, if you're a boss and you show interest in your employees and their endeavors, I feel like that's a validating thing. Yeah. This is getting a little too personal, it a little is. too heartfelt. <laughs> but if you're out there, I don't know what your name is, but I appreciate you. Even though I don't know who you are. So. I don't know if I should name him on the podcast. Maybe not. Yeah, let's just leave that. All right. So today we're going to be talking about new media and online funding. Um, and this encapsulates a lot of different things. And we could talk about all of the intricacies of what new media is and what you know what that represents mm-hmm. for, for a very long time. Today I want to focus more on kind of the business aspects of new media. And that's why we're talking about online funding. So the concept of what different kind of online funding platforms are emerging currently, how are they going to facilitate the future of business? You know, a lot of people who are economists and who focus on business theory, I feel like aren't focusing that much on economic theory, how it implies to kind of the grassroots internet funding kind of thing. And that's kind of something that I think is going to become more commonplace and more relevant to people who work in that field in the future. Yeah, I think it's going to be good to define new media before we start delving any deeper into this this concept. I think that a lot of people might not understand the broad level that that new media reaches. Mm-hmm. How would you define new media? Because it doesn't have a particularly would, specific yeah, thing. This, so this, we'll this, just this define it question. for our context yeah. of what we're going to talk about. I would define new media as media that's uh, that has started or has been generated as a result of the internet and the networks that come about because of the internet for example youtube uh snapchat facebook video um are there any any other players that you would think about in a weird way um i think that these are kind of the these are networks that are more on the art side and i think that they're actually very synonymous with other sort of networks that that have come about for example like uber or lyft sure absolutely i think that they're kind of the arts equivalent of something like that yeah uh, i i think that's a good definition is basically any media that's emerging through new emergent technologies that have provided new new avenues for people to create content um i mean youtube is the one that i think of because that's something i'm most active on but obviously youtube instagram anything like that but also the way that existing media is integrating with new media mm-hmm. i would say that i mean just just one way to talk about the new media trend this isn't specific to new media is just the idea that video as as a information format mm-hmm. has become the dominant format in the past five years in a way that it wasn't before and that basically everyone if they have the option of consuming media either through a text format or a web format through a video format 90 percent of the time it seems like people are going to watch the video these days 
So then why are we making a podcast? Shit. But then you got the people who listen to vinyl and you got the people who listen to podcasts. And it's still a pretty, you know, I said 10%. 10 is a pretty good market share if you can get into it. I don't actually, so that's interesting too. Podcasts are also part of new media. They are. I mean, podcasts, the, the name of podcasts is because of the iPod. So it hasn't existed for all that long. I mean, podcasts are a little over a decade old as an art form, I would say. Mm-hmm. So uh, Art so, form, media form. I don't know if I'll call this an art. Yeah. So I think that if we want to sum it up, I think that there's two really interesting and novel things about new media. Mm-hmm. The first being that you can reach very niche and targeted audiences very quickly. Exactly. For example, I can make a video about my train collection and I can talk to every other train collector out there. Mm-hmm. That that is something that you probably could not have made a TV show about before because you need to be you need it to be more generalizable. Mm-hmm. And two, um and this goes along with that other idea, new media is typically shorter and in more bite-sized crunches. Mm-hmm. For example, um YouTube videos are typically shorter than a TV show. Uh, most videos are around, would, would you say, between one and five minutes or one and ten minutes long? I would say the majority of content probably is that. It depends on the way it's being served as well. What format is it being served in? If you're watching videos that are being put up on Facebook or on Instagram, then it's going to be a lot longer than, you know, the people who are into analytical videos on YouTube. You know, there are, there are a lot of niches. Yeah. And these... That's one thing is when you look at people who are nostalgic about old media, like about, you know, the rock ages of the 70s, like popular popular culture from those times. We've reached a point in which so much content can be created and disseminated so easily because there's really no barrier between the artist and the consumer mm-hmm. that, the, the, you know, popular media is still popular media and the radio still has honestly a bigger influence than I would expect. But that's mostly because I don't listen to it all that much. Yeah. Um, but you're seeing a lot of smaller niche collectives basically developing behind different music genres. I'm really into music, so that's kind of the instance where I've seen it a lot. But yeah. also there's different YouTube communities where these people know each other and these audiences kind of interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so things have become a lot more fragmented. So it's it's not as easy to talk about like collectively what do the 2010s represent culturally. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that you can point to the same way that you can with the 70s with huge mustaches and like classic rock and that kind of thing. Like it's It's not the same way. But so, yeah, that splintering of culture is is something that, you know, is synonymous with new media. Yeah. So I think that in a weird way, um, new media has actually caused old media, such as television or movies, to actually evolve as well. Uh, yes. Right. Absolutely. So um, I, I think I've brought this point up before in in our one of our older podcasts, and it, this is probably a point that I'm going to make for a very very long time is it aggregation theory it's kind of related to aggregation is it network effects it's no not really network effects so because of the internet you see people trending towards the the left and right edges of whatever spectrum that they're in so for example now because of the internet really really short videos are very popular and very, very long videos are very popular as well. Mm-hmm. Something kind of in between isn't really uh, palatable anymore by people. So, for example, you either have the Snapchats of the world where you have 30 seconds to a minute or you have, you know, hours and hours of content like television that people want to binge watch on Netflix. Okay. Both of those extremes have gotten popular and have gotten hyper-radicalized because of the Internet. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of relates... To the idea of aggregation theory, I can bring it up now. Sure. In the idea that 
when when a this this is basically media forms, but basically when a company becomes dominant and has a size to the point where you can't really directly compete with it, the only other way that you're going to be developing an audience is by appealing to as niche an audience as possible. Really, the the two ways that you can become big on the internet these days is you can create a parody or a reference to something a pre-existing very popular thing, basically standing on the shoulders of giants. Dumb Starbucks. Yes. Nathan, for you, season four. I haven't finished it. It's brilliant. Watch it. It's or, not that brilliant, but that episode was pretty good. I'm sure it is. But, or you can basically appeal to niche audiences that don't have a pre-existing voice to represent them in popular culture. Yeah. You know, people people like to be validated. So, I mean, a huge thing that we see now is when it comes to, like, consumerism. Like, the sneakerhead movement is, like, a fascinating one to me. There's so many people who are passionate about specific product spaces. Yeah. That just seeing people who are obsessive about them like them and, like, taking the level of detail and analysis that they see themselves and seeing that in a public space, like, that's really engaging to people. Yeah. So, like, that's one way that you as a singular person in new media, you know, as a YouTuber can develop an audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I don't think I have anything really to add on to that. Sick, dude. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we did a broad thing of new media, but I, I guess now we can kind of break it down by platform and the idea of what are some existing platforms that you think have had a very important shaping effect on the kind of media that's being created now? Because I think a lot of people, when, when they evaluate like new technology and new platforms, they see it purely through the lens of what the technology offers and not in the way that the format in which the technology is offering you different content and how that's going to basically change the content itself so so what i'm saying is like the delivery format of a new media form is going to affect the media and is thus going to affect the culture it's not just one thing so what you're saying is a lot of times people will translate over from one medium to another rather than taking full advantage of whatever the new medium that currently exists Yes, a combination of that and just when we look at new technologies, we don't think about the cultural ramifications enough. We don't think about what's produced through them. We think about them singularly as that technology and like what that means. Can you give me an example? Um, yeah, I mean, sure. An example is like Netflix, right? I mean, with the advent of Netflix, people were saying, oh, what this, what Netflix signifies is it's going to be the death of movie theaters because people aren't going to have to pay as much to go and see films. I don't think there was as much talk, at least initially, about how is this change in consumption and the way that people can more easily access media and can binge it in different ways. How is that going to change the type of content that is created because people are going to basically develop new shows that are built specifically for this format? So you're basically saying that... So they view it in the context of a pre-existing format and how it changes that format instead of... How is it going to create a new format? So you're saying that analysts looked at Netflix and thought, because all of these movies are readily available, people will not want to go to a movie theater less. While what actually happened was people started binge-watching television and brought across the golden age of television. television In which some of the most prominent film directors now choose to make television. Yeah. Yeah. Because they they adapted to the format rather than the other way around. Exactly. And that's that's what you see is uh, when you have new sort of mediums most of the times the people who really emerge out of these fields are the people who do take full advantage of of the medium itself for example uber uber could not have existed without the iphone Mm -hmm. and there is no other device that you know combined a gps and the internet as easily as the iphone did Mm -hmm. so that's why they really won that market versus some of those other text or call a cab type services that really started coming about at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
basically building your content to its distribution and to its platform. Or having so, those be all one and the same. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, just building off of that, we can talk about what are some of the pre-existing things that have shaped new media. And then from there, what are the resulting uh, monetization strategies that come out of this? Because I think it's really interesting to talk about, because ultimately, you know, the way media is driven and the way everything is driven is through the economy. If you cannot find a way to properly monetize the content that you're creating, then it's not going to be sustainable. And I think that's something that we're in the midst of right now. So just to jump forward, because I love talking about Patreon, because... I think it's awesome. Um, Jack Conti, who's someone we've actually both met personally. Back when he was in Moose, we saw him at we should uh, make the him, JFK Center. We should make him the cover art. Dude, shouts, shouts out to Jack Conti. He's been making these incredible vlogs recently Yeah. to get Casey Neistat's attention because he wants to do some kind of partnership with 368. Yeah. And it totally worked because he's brilliant and he makes like some of the most imaginative and high editing and high velocity content that you can make for i mean for i'm i'm surprised I mean, he basically reinvented the vlog in like six minutes i'm surprised that jack and casey didn't know each other they're both very famous youtubers mm-hmm. it seems like they would be in the same network or at least have friends that know each other i would assume they have friends but it's i mean they're on opposite sides of the yeah country, but so it makes sense if you have a friend of a friend you can connect them pretty easily i would assume they knew each other by proxy at some point yeah but of course they knew each other by proxy Anyway, what I was getting out of Patreon, what was I getting out of Patreon? So we're, we're, I think, I think, I think what we're trying to go into here is how does media make money? Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. What are, what are monetization strategies uh, with new media? And I think there's a couple, right? So the first really being like feed advertising. So specifically advertisements that appear inside of a news feed or as a service uh, within an application. So, so for example, if you talk about like the traditional like Google AdSense, that's that's advertisement where it's actually happening, you know, on the banners or on the sides of the advertisement. You're saying this is like ingrained advertising where it's a sponsorship that is a known thing specifically set up with the company and they put it on their newsfeed. So, for, yeah, a g- good example um, of this would be BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. So BuzzFeed has regular posts, but they also have sponsored posts with different companies, right? So when you're scrolling down and you're looking at all of the articles on BuzzFeed, you might see one that is like top 10 tips to clean your house sponsored by glad or something like that, where it looks exactly like one of your other articles, but it has some sort of um, a label or a different color to identify that it's an advertisement. Mm-hmm. And this was actually something that kind of spurred this entire conversation is back at the end of 2017, there were reports that Buzzfeed was going to kind of miss its revenue target by about 20%. And I remember that, like, when this happened, you had messaged me and you were saying that, like, this was a signification of this particular form of advertising maybe not being, you know, as monetizable as people might have thought. Or is it a signification that the traditional forms of advertising, whether it be clickable ads, banner ads, or even ingrained advertising where it's a direct sponsorship, is this sustainable for smaller creators to make a living? This is a good question. I think that... uh, I think one, um, if we talk about it at a small scale, this is absolutely not sustainable at all for any independent content creator. Mm-hmm. Having these sorts of sponsorships, it requires a you you kind of need a large audience to make any sort of money on this because typically you're either a making money off of clicks uh, when you're looking at something like this, or you're getting um, direct sponsorship uh, from different lifestyle brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't have a large audience you're not going to be able to do well by your advertisers. So it's just not going to be a good relationship for either party in that scenario. Mm -hmm. 
in specifically with with the case of BuzzFeed, I think that uh, this is really interesting because BuzzFeed has uh, a, a lot of different revenue streams at this point. They, they've actually been experimenting a lot. And um, they've been trying to get into a lot of different areas. So, for example, uh, one of their biggest hits in the last year has been Tasty, which is their mm-hmm. YouTube channel. I heard about that, yeah. Uh, and they're actually doing some really interesting things. Like, for example, they had their own kitchenware at Walmart now. Mm-hmm. And they actually made their own, um, like, hot plate. I don't know if you know what a hot plate is. Mm-hmm. It's basically a portable stove. Yeah. I mean, even, even scaling down to, like, individual creators, I think one of the best monetization schemes, and we're seeing this through... I guess if we're talking about a different spectrum outside of video formats or news formats when it comes to musicians, um, there's there's a trend of people who don't want to be attached to a label. And the way that they're able to monetize themselves is by building kind of a personality brand. It's not just the music. It's kind of your, it's the cultural impact of that person. And it's through selling merch that they're actually making that money. So just just in general, when it comes to media, I feel like the way that individuals can make a lot more money is by developing themselves outside of just the singular content that they create and then building it into a multi-format, multi-sensory experience that goes beyond like different social media outlets. And through that, they can get people to want to buy their merch, to want to rep their merch and say that that signifies who they are culturally in some way. Would you say that building a personal brand is very important in this day and age? I would say that building a personal brand is very important this day and age. So that way you could monetize on different platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, or any other platform. You want to you hear one of the best examples of how this worked tragically? Yeah. His name is Logan Paul. Yeah. He is a maverick. He's great. And he makes a shit ton of money, I'm certain. And that's... He does make a shit ton of money. And if he were to get kicked off Facebook, which is almost... Yeah, he's also... A horrible person. (laughs) Don't watch his videos. But the thing is, even if if he was going to get knocked off of particular platforms, he's going to be fine because he... Because like I said, he's diversified himself so much. He's... Okay, I hate the content that he produces, but and I think that his the law the Japanese video that he the, the suicide forest thing mm-hmm. was utterly offensive, and he probably knew the type of reaction he was going to get out of doing something like this. But all this being said, I think he's a brilliant business person. Mm-hmm. He he really knows what he's doing in terms of setting up a studio. So his so Logan Paul, uh, just to give you guys a little bit of background, if you don't know who he is. He's a YouTuber who really appeals towards teenagers. Not even, I mean, it, dude, there's like eight-year-olds. Yeah, okay. So, so like, children below the age of 18. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and he's kind of like one of those those teen stars, I guess. Mm-hmm. And now that he's kind of reaching adulthood. A modern teen star. So modern teen star. It's, he's, the, he's the equivalent of... Drake and Josh. Know, Drake and Josh, Miley Cyrus, like, those things back in the day. Like... Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that's evidence of media and new media forms changing is that you can engage and reach a far wider audience through Instagram and Twitter and YouTube than you could through any existing TV station. I mean, there's YouTube videos where he went to like Dubai and he was able to fill up like an entire concert hall with just his fans. And he did like a whole like meet and greet type thing. Mm -hmm. That's something that was reserved kind of for the people you were talking about before, kind of like the Miley Cyrus is... The Jonas Brothers, th- those sorts of people, not necessarily YouTubers. Um, but anyways, the the point I wanted to make is he's he's getting older, and he's kind of reaching the point where he's not as appealing to the the teenage audience anymore. And what does he do? He actually goes out and builds a studio, and he's recruited like eight 
to 10 people who he thinks are going to be the next teenage stars. So you might be mixing up Logan Paul and Jake Paul now. Jake well, Paul, they, were, the team, they, they, were they in do, the studio. they do similar things, but I know that Jake is the one who's like more into kind of building a collective of artists. But, they both kind of do it. though. Yeah, but but the, I don't in, want to in, talk about these guys for too long. All right. In <laughs> essence, they're building a brand and they're they're brilliant for doing that. Mm-hmm. And they're using new media and exploiting it for exploiting it. <laughs> That's a good term. Yeah. They for, found, for they, they of found dollars. the ways to turn the keys. They, they, ha- they found cool. out how to game the system. All right, so now going back to, I guess, platforms, and we'll start by just doing an overview of kind of existing platforms, and then what kind of content's been inspired by that, and then how is it going to be monetized in the future, I guess. So I'd say the earliest form where we saw, like, a new media funding platform that really gained a lot of traction was Kickstarter. I think prior to seeing Patreon and Twitch and these other services that we'll be talking about in a sec, Kickstarter was kind of the first one. Um, And it really does... When, when, you, when you talk about like the nascent Kickstarter, mm-hmm. um, and how it was difficult, there, there were okay. Sorry, sorry. So I think that we do need to take like one tiny step back. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're about to transition and about to talk to is patronage models and how and specific systems and and applications that were created to uh, that were that that are geared specifically towards creators mm-hmm. rather than networks where. People can post content like YouTube, one of which is Kickstarter. And sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something we'll go into is that a lot of these platforms still kind of act as networks. And that's something that we're going to have to talk about. Um, but yeah, just just historically, I, I think Kickstarter is the first instance of this becoming a widespread thing where people, you know, like we've always had NPR and we've always had WETA and these kind of, you know, donor based networks. Um, yeah. But it's almost always through the government. Like, if it comes to a, a privatized form of content creation, it's almost always being funded either through the sale of merchandising or through advertising. I mean, that's where television is being made. That's music. Basically, all of these forms were being monetized through that. Um, and now we can go back to um, what Jack Conti had said about Patreon really quickly. Is He had this great TED Talk. Um, where he basically just went over the production line, the supply chain of how do you get from a creator basically creating a artistic work to the point in which it gets into the hands of a consumer and how much went through, you know, how many different um, stops were there between that. You had the record producers, you had the distribution of things, and once the internet comes in, and once we kind of rethink the way that we can actually format and we can consume media... We broke all of it down. And what he's saying is we've reached a point in which there are no boundaries between the creator and the consumer. So the question is, what's the most direct way that you can facilitate a transaction between someone who wants to consume something and create something? Yeah. 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 And he, he did a great job. So I'll, I'll link that below. We're, we're going to start doing links on here because Patreon? I think that would be good. Hmm? You're going to link to Patreon? I'm going to link to the TED Talk. Oh, yeah. It's a good TED Talk. Go to the TED Talk. Um, yeah. So Kickstarter was the first instance of this, I think. And... You can definitely tell that it was it was the first and it was kind of in a nascent period where there were a lot of kind of sketchy and iffy things happening on Kickstarter where people would make, you know, lofty promises towards huge, huge productions they want to do and just did not perform on them. Um, I, I You know, one, one of them that went on forever that I recall, there were a lot of video game things that were controversial. Mighty Number no. 9, which was from uh, Keiji Inafune, who was the original creator of Mega Man. He promised making the spiritual successor of Mega Man and it would be out by a certain time frame. 
It took like three times that. It wasn't anything like what people initially thought it would be. So warning for anyone buying anything on Kickstarter or any other platform, Mm -hmm. you will not get your thing on time. You will get your thing likely three or four months late, if at all. It's... Consider Kickstarter a donation. Don't consider it as a bonus. Basically. And, you know, this goes to how do different formats um, cater to different kinds of media, right? Kickstarter was the first instance of this. Um, and what we were seeing here is people who wanted to do large projects. I want to make a film. I want to make an album. I want to make a video game. These were not people who were saying, I'm a vlogger. I make consistent content on a weekly basis. I want to continue to make this content. This wasn't podcasts that were making things these were singular projects that they needed funding for so would you say that this was more of a product or project based donation system versus a subscription based donation system exactly and also when I, what i was saying earlier when it's like how do we contextualize new forms of technology and how they're going to change media it makes sense that kickstarter is the first because kickstarter is reinventing how we we're funding traditional media the way that we saw it you know that we're still at an instance where most things you consume are relatively large format. There's a large budget behind them. They're big projects. So going back, um, I think that this is more of a translation, right? So going back to saying, here's how we funded things before. Mm-hmm. Here's a literal digital trans- translation of how we were doing it. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're a television show or a movie, you go to a big movie theater and ask for a budget. At Kickstarter, you do the same thing, except yeah. you ask real people. It was, it was saying, we're recontextualizing what investors are. You become an investor in a project. That's what it was. It wasn't your patron. That's kind of what it became because people realized that it wasn't, you can't really hold people to themselves on Kickstarter. It's kind of hard. But I remember when it was first coming out, and this is like early 2010s, I guess. Um, it was like, you are a partial investor in this in this property. And you get certain perks from it, but it's always large format content. Um, so yeah, I mean, moving on from there, I think Patreon is the one that I'm most passionate about, most interested in. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that's been happening with the company recently. Um, but the, the way it originally was created was Jack Conti, who is a musician who is famous for doing Moose videos. So he was one of the originators of what he called video songs. It was basically, I'm going to make a YouTube video for content that I make as a song. And I think that through making it in a video format as opposed to purely an audio format, I can capture a larger audience because the production that I can put behind the video is going to be just as interesting as the song itself. You know, I want to show a really kind of homegrown way of producing independent audio and making songs. He made really cool music videos. Yes. But the point is he, he was a creator and he was kind of, he, he had come from that background. So he knew what his audience was and he knew what kind of people he wanted to fund and what the mission was from, from the get go. Yeah. He, um, he's a founder of Patreon. And I think that he, he saw this breakdown that he had himself And he knew that other people had it and he created a product to solve that situation. Mm -hmm. The problem he was specifically trying to solve is that YouTube revenue is not consistent. And um, the YouTube revenue system does not favor content creators. It favors YouTube. Mm -hmm. So this is actually something that we talked about last week as well, just as, or last episode rather. Um, where it comes to YouTube is a platform. They're not even a profitable platform at the moment. So if they are making their money through advertisers and advertisers don't want to be on their content, it's understandable that YouTube is going to want to facilitate that content and tell people, hey, we're not going to monetize this video because if we make one wrong move, it can hurt our entire business strategy, right? But I think that uh, on the flip side, if you look at YouTube as a network, most of the content creators on YouTube do not capture a significant amount of value on that network. 
YouTube, the company, actually captures most of the value that's available on the network itself. And specifically, the um, when it comes to dictating who gets advertisement, who, who gets the, the privilege to even get to show advertisements, YouTube gets to control that. Mm-hmm. YouTube can demonetize your account at, at, at any whim. They can turn you what they can delete your account and say you no longer have the privilege of making any videos on here and if they make any changes to their algorithm that's going to impact who actually gets to see your videos mm-hmm. so they they control a significant because they control a significant amount of the experience that's available on youtube the service it really screws over content creators exactly yeah and then yeah, so as, as I was saying, like YouTube does not have a personal responsibility to creators, but these creators are trying to make a li- livelihood off of it, and for a long time they were able to. You know, there was a period where YouTube had not been taken over by larger media corporations and advertisers weren't as stringent with what they were doing, and people really could make a living. Yeah. And understandably, people are, you know, at arms about this. They're saying, hey, my videos are being demonetized unjustly. Clearly, this is happening through an automized algorithm. This is not individual people doing this. These are people's lives that you are jeopardizing through not monetizing. How could you? But then, how can they? You know, how can they properly do this when they're not even being profitable with the way that they're doing things currently? Yeah, but I also I also disagree a little bit, right? Like YouTube does have a responsibility with their uh, content creators because because of network effects, right? People network effects, network effects, users will come to YouTube because there's a lot of content creators Mm -hmm. on YouTube and uh, content creators will come to YouTube because there's a lot of users on YouTube. Exactly. So as a result, YouTube, the platform benefits from this sort of double sided market and they're developing themselves as a platform. So they should have some regulation or some sort of processes in place to talk to content creators to make sure that they are being treated justly because that's ultimately going to uh, impact their network and, and help them grow as a company. And I think bringing up network effects here is really important because when we're looking at Patreon, we have to ask what's different between Patreon and what we used to see in a PayPal model where you have a donation button on your individual website or on YouTube. I mean, this used to be a thing as they'd say in the top right of my channel, if you want to make a donation to support me, here it is. And it, this is the question of, this is kind of the biggest question of how are we going to fund new media is, can we normalize people into a patron-based and a donation-based system being the norm? To the point where we're saying, I appreciate this content, I appreciate what you're doing, I'm going to donate to it because I want to help facilitate it in the future. Um, and this is where Patreon comes in is, yes, we had PayPal, yes, we had donation systems, but people weren't conditioned to use them because it's just not something that was in the norm. I mean, people who had a lot of money to throw around and really liked content, they liked it. And, you know, there, there are plenty of places that did survive out of this. I think a big um, art form that really existed on the internet was web um, comics. Web comics were something where they all had their own websites. This wasn't something that could work through YouTube as a platform. So they all had to have their own tiny island on the internet. But through merchandising and through donations, they kind of stayed afloat. But then when you talk about someone like someone who does YouTube videos or someone who does music on YouTube, those people, it's just not normalized to the people who consume the content, to the audience of doing any more than just watching the video. And maybe if you don't have Adblock on, you'll make them a couple cents. So from network effects, I think we can go to the idea of like network familiarity. 
people have been conditioned to understand YouTube as a distribution format, right? They've been conditioned to understand social media. And I think what Jack Conti saw and what these other people saw with Kickstarter as well is how can we take this funding platform and use network familiarity, basically taking the way which in which people currently interact, saying, I want one singular website that I go to. I go to Facebook. I go to YouTube. If I want to fund people, if I want to get exclusive content, I go to Patreon. I don't go to one website. Everything is singular and everything is under one roof, essentially. And that's the idea of network familiarity. He's saying, I understand now that it's about big tentful websites that individual creators come to because you have the network effects of this big website and because a lot of people are going to find your content. How can I do that for all of funding people individually? So you're saying that once uh, content creators go to different platforms and capture an audience, they can then go to Patreon or some of these other funding platforms to capture value from these existing user from this existing user base. Yeah, I'm saying that these large temple websites that have become the norm for where people put content to be consumed, it's analogous and understandable that the best way, if that's the norm for how people are consuming content, then the way they should fund content should be similar, right? It should be one singular website. There should be a standardized form of how it works. And the way Patreon works is you either pledge saying like per video or per, per piece of work you create or per month I'm going to donate a certain amount of money and then what they have created on this website, and what's so great is they've created one singular system that every creator can use when they set it up, is you have different tiers. So you say, if I donate this much a month, I get these tiers. I get you know, to talk with the person personally. I get special perks. I get videos early, something like that. So Creating on, one singular network for all of this funding. So on average, um, what's the average uh, Patreon donation? I think it's somewhere around like a dollar or two. Something like I'm that? glad you asked. Let's look at these stats that I have here because I have some good stuff. Well, really quickly, just when we're looking at overall how successful Patreon been, if we're talking about February, end of February 2016, uh, the monthly payouts for the entire website were $5 million. Um, and there were 872,000 individual pledges. So we're talking about about $6 per person. Mm-hmm. And now we're at the point where end of May 2018... We're at almost $12 million, and there are about 4 million individual pledges. So now it's $3. And this makes sense. The more the people are going to get on, you know, it's it's the early adopters who are going to be most into the platform and who are most into the content. They're going to pay more money. So we've gone from about $6 on average to about $3 on average. But overall, we've gone from, you know, $5 million to $12 million a month. So what does yeah, that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think this is awesome because... The, the secondary effect of what you're just saying is that I would bet that a bunch of different content creators are now getting patronage and getting money rather than before. Exactly. And yeah, they might be getting less money uh, on a per user basis uh, and for, for the exact reasons that you've just said. They're, they're crossing the chasm and getting more mainstream users, for lack of a better word. Yeah, the, the, the actual revenue that they're going to get is dropped. But... This also means that Patreon is going to be an an accepted business model that partners like YouTube will likely have to integrate with in the near future. Yeah, and I think another thing that we can relate to when it comes to monetization schemes is actually mobile games and mobile content. The idea that 95% of the people who watch your video on YouTube are not your patrons. 
and you might make a little bit of money if they're not using ad block, but the probability that you are is relatively low. But what Jack Conti was saying in his video is he's saying, you know, we have all these content creators who have, let's say, 40,000 people who watch their content on a monthly basis. And that, when it comes to YouTube, I mean, that's not even that big. There are tens of thousands of people who have that much of an audience. And he's saying, if you can fill a huge stadium of people who are making, who are consuming your content and you can't make a living off it, then the system is broken. The system's fundamentally broken if that's not enough. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And what he identified is what people call the whale theory when it comes to media, when it comes to mobile games, is I'm going to, you know, Clash of Clans. They have X million people playing on a monthly basis. Let's say 90% of people don't pay a dime for it. But let's say of those 10% that do, 0.5% are paying $70 or more a month for that content. And you extrapolate that through and you're saying, well, that means that like every single person is making us a dollar a month. Um, and it's the same thing with Patreon. It's like 95% of people aren't your patrons. But the few people who say, I want to donate $20 a month. I want to get the best perks. I want to be able to talk to you personally. I want to get flown out and hang out with you. Like, if you can find those people and identify them, and this goes back to building a brand, is building kind of a cult of personality. It's people who identify with your content and want to be part of it. Those are the people who are going to pay the most, and that's a way you can monetize yourself in a good way. Yeah, and I, I think that um, another interesting point is there's a lot of parallels to this and to the App Store as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you brought up Clash of Clans, which is a really great example. But there's a lot of independent developers who feel the same exact way. So up until very recently, um, I actually don't have the exact date with me right now, um, but the App Store did not support a subscription model. Mm -hmm. And this led, yeah, and and this led to kind of the same effects of what you're saying of you could have enough people to have downloaded your app or have used it, but you will not be making consistent enough revenue to justify producing applications or producing content on a per year basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can actually see this very clearly once the subscription model came out on the App Store. Several uh, creators immediately went over to that model. So one uh, really famous one is TweetBot, uh, which is an independent uh, Twitter app, which is, you know, bespoke, it's really well designed. And every year they're constantly making redesigns for it. But users who had, you know, paid their initial dollar or $2 to purchase the app, they felt obligated, you know, five, 10 years down the line to keep receiving updates, even though they've paid not that much money at the end of the day. It's less than mm-hmm. a cup of coffee, right? You wouldn't expect someone to work for you for four years for a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And Jack is ultimately solving the same exact problem right here. And this is a problem that that is actually being generated by these sort of content creation networks. So, for example, YouTube, the App Store, Instagram, um, any other sort of network or platform where people generate content or provide services. Because Not only the, that, but providing services on a regular basis, right? Yeah. Providing services on a regular basis or... or on some a, kind of schedule. It's yeah, not one singular exactly. product. Yeah. Across some period of time. And until these networks decide that they want to provide a more fair revenue split or or share some of the value that they're producing back to the content creators, stuff like Patreon is going to be fundamentally important for content creation to be made in the future. Mm -hmm. 
So we've been we we've been throwing a lot of praise at Patreon. So I think quickly, so we can get to the next funding platform. What are some problems that Patreon's introducing, right? Um, and I think there's a couple clear ones. I, I talked about network familiarity, right? The idea that um, basically building a platform that is familiar in function and the idea that it aggregates, it's basically an aggregator of a lot of people into one place can be very beneficial in the sense that people are normalized to going to those kinds of platforms and it's going to make more sense for them to use those. They're, it's just easier for them to immediately understand and say, oh, this is how this works. Um, but what else comes from being an aggregator and being the one roof under which everything happens? Um, and one instance of Patreon is the way that they regulate their content. We've when we talked about regulation last episode, and this is one instance where Patreon got in trouble recently, um, where they decided to shut down someone who was, they, they did some kind of conservative channel and they did something who Jack was actually on a, on a talk show where he said, the reason that this happened is because they were in violation of our content policy. But what everyone else said is you clearly have a particular agenda with what you want to support with your platform. If you really want to be this universal network where anyone can come and do their things, you have to be 100% non-biased when it comes to the things you fund. But Jack from the start said there's certain things we don't want to fund. Like, we don't want porn on our platform. We don't want hate speech on our platform. That kind of stuff, right? But then then it comes to what constitutes this, what constitutes this, and then how the question is how can you be a platform and not a publisher? This is the same thing we talked about last time. Is like, Patreon wants to be the end-all and be-all for this kind of stuff. But once any kind of content comes up that they don't want to be attached to their name because they're not just PayPal. You know, PayPal, it doesn't matter what you pay through. PayPal is not defined by the content through which you're paying. PayPal is purely a utility. Patreon is a platform. Right. For the record, PayPal does also block... Uh, certain things certain things they like also deep do. web stuff and like yeah, yeah they they do have a sort of privacy policy and that sort of thing so you you cannot transfer money to every potential business that that is on you can't that, silk road through paypal you have to yeah use, exactly. you have to use monero you need to get that yeah, crypto and do it or something yeah it's probably very similar where they probably don't allow porn and that sort of thing mm-hmm. but yeah i mean patreon is an even bigger instance because it's one website it's one platform and like with YouTube and like with other things, they are defined by the people on it. Um, and then another instance where Patreon got in trouble, they, they kind of pulled a YouTube where they very quickly kind of informed everyone, hey, we're going to change our monetization scheme. This is how it is. No one was informed beforehand. This is why everyone is hating on YouTube. Is like, we understand that you are a business and you need to drive a profit, but you need to let all the people who, you know, the business cannot exist without the creators. We're the ones who make it worthwhile. So you need to keep us in the loop. So what Patreon was going through, um, and really quickly the way Patreon works is they take a 5% cut of all donations. So that's how they're able to facilitate their servers and upkeep and development and all that stuff. Um, But in addition to that, um, when it comes to the actual transfers, the bank account transfers and how that all happens, um, they were basically saying, hey, we're going to say that for every $1 that you donate, you are actually paying $1.37. And the reason we're going to do that is because when it comes to all the overhead fees that we need to apply to get the transfer working and to get our cut, it takes $1.37 per... It takes $1.37 from the consumer to get exactly $1 to the creator. And what we want to do is we want to create a flat line, a consistent way in which the creators get money. We don't want there to be variability. Um, and then all the people... And well, it wasn't 1 to 137. It was like 37 cents on whatever donation you do. It's like 37 extra cents. Um, and what people were saying were, 
all the people who are donating $1 right now are a lot more hurt by this, you know, relatively than people who are donating 25. Those people won't care. But what if I lose a lot of the people who are only donating a little bit just to help me out because they don't want to pay just a bit more? So people got really mad because Patreon kind of just dropped this on people. Um, and there was a huge public outcry. And in the end, Patreon's like, never mind. And a couple days later, they're like, we're not doing it. We're going to work with you guys and figure out what's the right way to do this. Which, you know, they did the best damage control they could in which they didn't do the thing. So that's good. Um, but what came out of that was... For now. We'll see. I trust them. I, th- I think they're good. But this can segue into the next platform, which kind of responds to this in a way of saying like, hey, we're, we can use this as a way to, you know, advertise for our own platform. And this platform is called Coffee. I don't know if you've actually heard of this one. I haven't. So Coffee, Coffee, this is another thing where it depends on network effects and the idea that certain types of content benefit certain types of platforms. Coffee is something that's used by a lot of in- illustrators, a lot of people who really like short form, small content. I know a lot of illustrators who do it. I, I know a lot of like musicians who do it. So what Coffee does is we're like, we're not a subscription service. We're not, we don't have any of the trappings that Patreon does and we're not going to change anything up. All we are, literally all Coffee is, is it's like a wrapper for PayPal. So it's like a website that you can go to and it s- simplifies the way in which you can say, hey, this is my Coffee page, coffee.com slash my name. You click the donation button, you enter the thing, you enter your bank account information, you click go. And that's all it is. So it's hyper-simplified. It's like what you were talking, when, when we talk about disruptors, right? It's like taking a smaller subset of what a larger thing is and doing that one thing better. And that's how you can, you know, disrupt. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what coffee is. It's kind of this grassroots thing. It's like, we're not going to do this large format thing. We're not trying to support huge endeavors and get you like perks. There's no perk-based system in this. It's literally just, I like your stuff. I'm going to give you some money. So it, it goes back to the early donation model where, you want to give a dollar? Here's a dollar. Exactly. That sort of thing. It doesn't. Uh, there's no. There's no commitment. Mm-hmm. But then, once again, back to the idea of normalization of normalization of that thing. Or I, I was saying network familiarity. People want to go to one website, so they're like, "Oh, if I want to buy a coffee for you, that's the whole point." It's like, "Hey, you're paying for a coffee. It's built for small donations." You go to coffee.com. You don't have to go on the person's personal, you know, WordPress blog that barely works and click the PayPal donation button. It's one clean website that, you know, looks like what everything else looks like. And people are like, oh, this is how this works. So it's just how do you frame this in a modern context and make it simple for people to digest because they've seen this in other forms. And that's how you can basically make this donation system more, more palatable to people who aren't used to it already. And I guess one other one other cool funding platform is Twitch. I think Twitch is especially interesting um, because they have a lot of different ways in which they actually monetize. But one of the biggest ones is actually that Amazon owns Twitch and the, the Amazon basically does this thing where you get a free Twitch subscriber thing if you have Amazon Prime. And what that does is when you subscribe to someone, you're paying them, I think, $5 per month. I think it's something like that. Uh-huh. And it just gives you certain perks in the way that you're notified about their content and the way you access their content. Um but Twitch is another instance where it was built specifically for a certain type of content, where Twitch is built for streaming. You know, video game streaming. Specifically video game streaming, but it's kind of moving out of that, which I think is cool. There's a lot of people like, I follow music producers who are like, they're like bedroom producers, and they'll say, hey, I'm, I'm streaming live on Twitch for a couple hours. Get on, get in chat, send me your audio files, and I'll do something with them. Mm-hmm. It's like, 
the send them our podcast see what they do we should, we should that would be interesting they'd be like this sounds like shit but be like this is not music what are you doing it could be or they just auto-tune us to the point where we turn into that'll be real future vision yeah but yeah like twitch is an instance where they they took a small subset of things they said this is the gaming community they saw they identified that a lot of people like let's plays People are posting hour-long Let's Play videos on YouTube. This is in, like, what, 2012, 2013? When this thing, like, blew up. Everyone was playing Minecraft. And they're like, what if we made this live? You know, it would be so much more interesting. There would be more direct engagement with the community. They could talk live and people could respond live. And they're like, and they honed in on one specific thing. They're like, we're here for gamers. We're here for gamers for doing this. And this was before YouTube came in and did YouTube gaming. This is before anyone else kind of got on this. And since they were able to appeal to a small niche, network effects, making a niche to, to, to kind of break in at the first point, they were able to build a big enough community to the point where it wasn't, oh, you stream games on Twitch. It's, oh, you stream on Twitch. Twitch is the streaming platform. Yeah. And that's what it's become. And now it's built into this huge thing that tons of people make a living off of. Mm-hmm. So fun fact, if you remember uh, Justin.TV back hey, in the old days. Justin.TV. The, the co-founders from Justin.TV made Twitch. Is that? It's them and some other people, right? Yeah, of course. It's and other Justin, people. well, Justin.tv, that's the person who is basically live, doing a live video stream of his entire life, right? That was kind of the point. Yeah. And so you can just it's look the same at people. what's Justin up to. And they just know. took that technology and they recontextualized it. Yeah. That's Network Twitch. familiarity. Yeah. Cool. So we've talked about, I think, all of the dominant um, platforms that are used right now for monetization. So now I, I think we can expand this a bit back to the new media thing is like, how do these new monetization schemes transform the way that media is created and transform the forms of media that are going to be dominant in the future? We talked earlier about Netflix. You know, Netflix is an instance where when you first look at Netflix, you say, oh, this is a different way to consume TV and to consume movies. It's going to change the way that people do that. But then you think beyond that and you say, oh, how is this format going to rethink the way we actually make movies and make TV? and make content that is built for this platform. So the question is, I mean, we're seeing this a lot. It's not something we have to really speculate about. Go out and look for. But just the idea of what new types of content are going to become dominant and how are these monetization strategies going to become more commonplace to the point where people are like, oh, donations are a thing. This is something that is very commonplace. If you like content, you give a couple bucks for it, right? I think that, again, going back to this point that Media is is really transitioning transitioning into both ends, right? Mm-hmm. There's very niche targeted content, uh, which has a lot of interesting categories, right? Uh, I think you brought up a really good one earlier of like kind of sneakerheads and sort of like hype beast videos and stuff like that. Uh, another really interesting category that's come across is sort of all of these like makeup videos that are on YouTube, and they're actually one of the the biggest uh, sources of content on YouTube now. Like it, it, it's it's a category in of itself. Uh, when you compare that to kind of television 10, 15 years ago, you didn't have a television channel that was dedicated mm-hmm. just for to put makeup on. But YouTube has that. YouTube has millions. Subcultures, dude. Subcultures. M- yeah, millions of hours of content specifically just for that. And that's something that could not have existed with television and can only exist because of the internet and because of YouTube. And it, uh, it again, going back to content like Netflix because Netflix has uh, really deep analytics of when people are watching, how they're watching, what they're doing. It lets them really target 
a, a large amount of content and create binge watchable shows where they feel confident putting in 20, 40 episodes of a single TV show and put it up at once. And actually new media also plays a little bit into old media. You can use YouTube to validate a small concept that you can then produce as a movie. Um, this has been done multiple times already. Uh, and it has actually has been done on multiple platforms, not just YouTube itself. Uh, going back to YouTube, one of the, the best examples of this is, is Kung Fury. Kung Fury is a YouTube video that, that came out. It was a really cool 80s retro type movie that... that... Neo 80s. It's like what the 80s look like in your memory. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. the 80s with the level of production quality that we have now. Yeah. And now they're making a full feature length movie uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I actually didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, crazy. So again, like you can use some of these platforms to actually validate larger sources of content. And you actually see other studios doing this. For example, Marvel is now using comic books as a way to validate content that they can then produce as television or as movies, mm -hmm. rather than before comic books were their only source of revenue. So that's what they had to really hit on. Mm -hmm. Now they don't really have now to that's just testing the waters. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, the money is in the multi-billion dollar revenues from these movies. Yeah. And another example is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of, I think it's called Rome Sweet Rome or something like that. Uh, it's, that. It, uh, it's a screenplay that was on uh, Reddit uh, on one of the, I can't I actually can't remember the exact subreddit. R slash screenwriters or filmmakers or something like that. Yeah. There, there's a subreddit where uh, users submit a prompt and then people will write. Five, oh, okay. Like a writing prompt. 500 word. Or I think it's actually called like R slash writing prompts. Mm -hmm. So uh, this person produced this 500 word thing uh, called Rome Sweet, Sweet Rome that really, really hit it big. And he actually sold a, a full script of that movie to Warner Brothers. That's awesome. So That's really cool. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways and a lot of synergy between old media and new media. But one thing is very apparent. No one gives a shit about one episode of TV anymore. No one gives a shit about one movie anymore. And it, it's it's kind of just chump change either way. And this is actually really influencing the way that old content is being produced now. No movie producer now wants to produce a very rigorous one uh, yeah. one movie. Everything has to be part of a universe or part of a franchise. Yeah. Right? Or or the intent is to build a franchise from the get-go. Yeah. There There is not enough money to be in between. You either have to produce very targeted content or you have to produce very generalizable yeah. content that's going to really reach a wide audience. Yeah, and like you just said with the targeted content, this does not mean, this does not signal the death of the small budget film or even the medium budget film if we can get enough people to be expected to donate for this kind of content, if it's something they want to see. I think what I'm saying is that the medium budget film is going to die at theaters, but... Yes, well, it already has. But that doesn't oh, mean it, it, it can be at YouTube mm -hmm. or Netflix... It's really cool when you brought up Kung Fury because we th there's a direct inverse of that recently when it came to the Karate Kid. Um, Karate Kid, which is a really, really famous film from the 80s and had a couple sequels, they brought the original actors back and they did a YouTube series. It's it's on I think it's on YouTube Red. It's probably the first episode you can see free. But it's funny because they have like little YouTube-isms in it. Like uh, Niga Higa, Kevin Higa is like an actor in it randomly amongst all these like Karate Kid actors. And I'm just like... Uh, this is weird. I didn't get too far in it, but it's it's cool because that's kind of the inverse of 
of that is if that's where the money is and that's where people are at this point, then why not have the spiritual successor of Karate Kid happen on YouTube as opposed to another big budget film? Yeah. Forget chasing the money or chasing an audience. It's an opportunity that lets you fail fast, Mm -hmm. try a bunch of different formats, figure out what works and validate it very quickly. If you're trying to produce a startup or produce a new piece of technology, that's what you're trying to do. And that same theory applies here in content. And content is actually very, very rigorous towards this type of strategy. With television, you had to put in a lot of effort to fail very quickly. And now you can put in $100 and fail on YouTube and get the same results. You never need to... You know, you never need to make a huge investment without already having some kind of data. You know, also with the internet, just the just the level of data that they have. I think this goes back to Netflix, is they make incredibly niche television shows with relatively high budgets, but they know beforehand it's going to be profitable because they do very specific analytics on the viewing patterns of their entire audience. And since they've basically encapsulated all of at least the West when it comes to watching television, they know what people want. They can make these ultra specific things. They they're producing like. There's a new Netflix show coming out more than once a week at this point. And it's all, I mean, it's not all profitable, but they, there's always a reason for them to believe it's going to be profitable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making this much content. And they can make very data-driven decisions about this content because they know they probably have very deep analytics that television or movie producers don't have about this specific content. In addition to that, content producers on Netflix don't have to worry about people necessarily watching all of their shows. Netflix, because it's trying to cast a wide net and trying to produce things that's going to be applicable for a bunch of different audiences, probably doesn't care about the raw viewership numbers that uh, you might want. You might have cared about at a traditional TV studio or at a movie theater. If you're at a movie theater, you need more people to come for you to be a profitable movie or be a successful movie. And it's the same thing in television, but the same thing might not be true at Netflix. At Netflix, you you might have a movie that might have a a let's say a medium budget, right? But let's say it only spe- uh, it targets a specific audience. Let, let's say teenagers. If teenagers it's are, more, it's always more. It's like teenagers between this age and this age with an interest in this with a like it's incredible how specific they are sure which is just cool yeah so let's say that specific audience that you just talked about if they watched that movie that that you've been targeting to them then that product has therefore then been successful and therefore netflix has seen returns or gains on their investment it does not necessarily matter if every single person in the u.s has watched this specific video Mm And then I guess, you know, we talked about the rise of new media, but what does this mean for old media? You were talking about when it comes to movie theaters, like we're seeing the depth of the mid-budget film. It's basically if you're going to create a film at this point, you and now you have the data and you have the smaller grassroots ways of figuring out if it's going to be a successful platform, why not go all out and try to capture the biggest audience you possibly can? So the question is, well, not, not only... You know, we, we've, we're already seeing, and I, I remember like Steven Spielberg said like a decade ago, he's like, this is going to happen. We're going to lose the mid-budget film. Everything's going to be either a huge tentpole film or it's going to be a tiny thing. And this is because of the internet, because, you know, either a very small amount of people who are targeted are going to watch it or it's going to appeal to everyone. Um, and I think something that people worry about when it comes to the breadth of content that can be created now because there's so few barriers is, you know, does, does the reign of quantity mean the death of quality? 
in the sense that one, it's so much easier to make at least satisfactory content at this point. You know, up until 15 years ago, like you, you know, most people could not even make a video anywhere near the level of quality that a 10 year old could now on YouTube. The kind of things that they can order and buy with, you know, allowance money is, is incredible at this point. So the question is, if, if we set the ceiling or if we set the floor is so much lower, but it's actually not really lower because technology has advanced with it, what reason does anyone have to push as far as possible? Like, what reason is there to push spectacle, spectacle as much as it possibly can go to push an art form forward when you now can specifically target something and make more money? And the instances where I guess we still see people pushing as far as they can is in Marvel films and, well, Marvel films. What else is really doing it anymore? I think but, that you you do see people pushing content even at the lower budget level. I think that the innovation that you just described is still innovation. It is. I think that what you're specific... It's individual innovation. Yeah. It's, it's, individually, it's, it's innovation in the context of how big the production team is. Yeah. Right? And I guess my question is, you're, you're, you're lamenting the fall of the medium budget movie what innovation I'm not really lamenting it i'm just what, wondering what what innovation was there at that level i think that what they were doing is producing really good content but there was no specific sort of you know graphics or like camera innovation or anything like that there if you really want something like that you actually have to make a large budget movie if you want to make something like inception where you really push cinematography forward mm-hmm. you're going to have to spend a lot of money I think that the, the 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 types of format or the medium format that's kind of dying didn't really produce a lot of that anyways. Mm-hmm. So there's, there hasn't been that much loss. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I don't think the content's changing that much. But I guess when it comes to delivery, when it comes to movies, obviously, like how much longer do you see movie theaters being a socially normal place where you go to see things? You know, we're seeing that things are basically available online through Amazon Prime, through Netflix, a lot faster than they used to be because I think these studios who are distributing this stuff realize that it's in their best interest. You know, once things die off after the first, like, three or four weeks of it being in theaters, you want to get it out as fast as possible because the hype is still there. People still want to see it, and you can drive as many clicks on Netflix and these other platforms and make the $4 on Amazon Prime to see it or something like that. And ultimately, that's going to be more beneficial than... You know, having it in theaters forever, having a couple people in the movie theater, and then maybe buying DVDs later on, which are now defunct, right? Yeah. So the question is, even if the content doesn't change, can movie theaters stay afloat? And I guess there aren't really analogous things for music, I guess. Well, with music, I guess it's, you know, vinyl vinyl staying alive and going to concerts, right? That kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I actually personally think that movie theaters are going to stay afloat. And I think that they are going to have to switch to different uh, business models. Like more premium experiences? or No, not necessarily more premium experiences. I think that they need to take more of a gas station approach in that they need to make the, the thing that... Like they need to make movies as cheap as possible so that way people will get in the door. Just like gas stations have an incentive to make gas as cheap as they possibly can. Okay. At, I have, well, I'm saying this in air quotes because gas is rising in price and pretty expensive at this point. But gas stations make most of their money from people buying food inside of the station. They actually don't make that much money mm-hmm. from Their gas. profit margins are pretty narrow. Yeah, it's sometimes gas is actually a loss leader, which means that they lose money from gasoline in, in a lot of places like Interesting. this. Interesting. I didn't so, I didn't know it was that bad. Yeah. So, um 
I think the movie theaters need to be the same way. I think that they need to provide an experience for people coming in, make the movies as cheap as possible so people will get in the door and charge a, a ton of money on really good food or provide kind of like an experience in the theater. And that and I, segues right to MoviePass, yeah, right? Yeah, and I think that that's something that MoviePass really kind of exposed in the industry. When you stop thinking about the price of a the, of the ticket of a movie, you start wanting to buy more food and wanting mm-hmm. to yeah. get, um, you know, like more get concessions and other things. And that was yeah. the argument MoviePass had. So there, it's really interesting, the argument on the other side. So MoviePass's argument makes sense. It's the, we're providing people with a $10 subscription every month if, for people who don't know what MoviePass is. You pay $10 a month and it's no longer you can see unlimited movies. But I think they actually took out the four. But you can't you see can, the same movie twice. You can't see the same can. movie twice. You can still see unlimited movies. They um, keep you flip-flopping. Can only see, you can only see one a day. You can't see more than one within a 20, not a 24-hour, but yeah, within like one day. But basically, yeah, you can watch it. You, you pay $10 a month. You can see all the movies you want. They put the money on a credit card for you, and you use that when you get there. Um, it's And it's it's I think it's brilliant. I love it. And the argument that they have for it is... You know, in benefit of movie theaters, hey, if these people aren't paying all that much for a ticket, they're more incentivized to buy a soda, buy something else while they're there. And that's where movie theaters make the vast majority of their profit as well, just like gas stations. Um, But then there's the argument on the other side. And that's where it gets interesting is movie theaters are saying you are resetting the value of a movie ticket. And if you fail and if you can't stay monetized, you know, if you can't stay liquid and you end up bankrupting, all the people who use their your platform who now see a movie as being worth, let's say they see three movies a month, then movies worth three and a three and a third dollars, right? Now it's dead. Movie theaters are back. Even if they can cut down a bit, they can't cut down to anything near that. Now they charge twelve dollars instead of fifteen. They still lose out long term. So they're saying, if you reset in an audience's mind what a movie ticket is worth, and then you fail, what happens to us afterwards? I mean, that's capitalism though you either yeah. adapt or you die i hope movie pass doesn't die people seem to want it to die which is odd to me i think that people people are just very skeptical about movie pass i don't think people want movie pass to die i mean i love movie pass i to be honest i probably mo- use movie pass just enough that it's cost effective for me so you see one movie every yeah i probably month and a half yeah basically basically and it's still worth it which is i mean for one we live in dc so everything's expensive yeah i mean if you're in new york it's even worse it's like 16 dollars a ticket there so even sometimes yeah even if you see one movie you're you're saving money right there and i i i I understand the argument from the movie theaters that yes it resets the value of what a movie ticket costs but is that such a bad thing I think going back, you're you're already operating at a loss there anyways. Make really good food. Make going to the movie theater an experience um, and just deal with it. I yeah. think that Alamo Alamo already kind of does yeah. this. They Alamo their, is the future of movie theaters. Yeah. I mean, they make their tickets very cheap. I think that their regular tickets are between 8 and $10 versus mm. closer to like 15 No, that's matinees. They're... they're they're average they're not extra even though it feels like a premium experience the premium experience comes from the food which even then isn't super overpriced but it's also not incredibly good food so they're able to make a pretty good profit margin off their food obviously yeah for sure and because what they what they did is that like getting food at alamo is part of the experience that you expect when you come in they found a way of basically integrating their own profit in into the experience itself so everyone who goes to alamo 
the reason you go there is because you get to have that you know that watch and watch and dine experience so it's yeah. great i think that's the future of movie theaters it's it's profitable for theaters themselves it solves a, a bunch of fundamental problems well it's, it's only not... profitable for the theaters that adapt every theater that isn't doing that kind of thing is going to fall out is basically what people are saying if you if if a you know if a, if a ticket falls down to ten dollars or you know whatever um you know a lot of people who previously used MoviePass or who now, I mean, there are already people who just don't go to theaters at all. They're just like, I can wait a couple months. I don't really care that much. There's so much content out now. I can wait. I can watch it. Either it comes on Netflix or it's on Amazon. Or they just watch it on YouTube. A lot of people, I mean, there's just so much content that people don't even look outside of the particular platforms that they're on. Like there are some people who are like, oh, it's not on Netflix or Hulu. I guess I can't watch it. And they just don't think beyond that. Like they don't care enough because there are so many other things to replace whatever they might've want to watch for a couple seconds. It just doesn't matter anymore. I mean, I've definitely fallen into that trap already where if a movie is not on any of those platforms, I don't bother trying to search for it in other yeah. places. You know, like people will give up on something when the price of it is less than a coffee they bought that morning. Because the way that people are trained to value different things is relative, you know? Well, I, I disagree with... I, I agree and disagree with you. I agree with what you're saying, that people don't value content properly. But I think in this day and age, asking someone to buy something extra is a little unreasonable. If I'm already paying, you know, $10 a month for Hulu and $10 a month for Netflix, I don't necessarily feel like I... I you know, paying the $3 extra for uh, one movie feels a little bit out of place but you know that's a movie that's, that's a on a platform of, that's not what you're paying for. that's that's a third of uh what i'm paying for netflix for air quotes unlimited movies mm-hmm. so why would i why would i do that right it, that's the race at the bottom yeah right yeah and yeah i mean that goes back to the patron model i think just to, just to close things out is like we're seeing a race to the bottom in almost every monetization scheme and everything you know we have mobile gaming race at the bottom we have pro gaming we, we have large games where you know, almost every big online game these days is free to play. Most of the monetization is coming from either loot boxes or from premium skins or any other thing. It's all about hunting the whales. We're seeing this in, I don't know, where else are we seeing this? It's everywhere. Most content I mean, online is free. Yeah. Once, you know, once again. And again, this goes back to the, the networks where you can access this content. They don't really value premium or gated content. Therefore, Content creators have to make it free to reach reach a wide audience to make any money, which has then spurred some of these patron models, which has then affected how people view media and how people want uh, it it affects how people view old media as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, when I was talking about like the normalization of patron based models, like people are getting to the point where it's more understandable. It's just a more common thing to say, I like this content. I'm going to go to a website and support it. So the question is, is is patron-based funding going to become normalized to the point where a singular aggregation site such as Patreon is no longer necessary? And I think that's something where I was talking about the problem of Patreon is that when you're on this platform, you don't have singular ownership of your content. I mean, you basically do, but you know, if they choose to take you down, that's their prerogative. You don't have control over whether or not they host you. Just like with YouTube, you know, you make a living off of it, but ultimately you don't really control the platform itself. So if people get accustomed enough to using these kind of platforms and saying, oh, if I like content, I go and I donate a dollar a month. And that just becomes a normal commonplace thing. 
it's just something that people grow up expecting, right? Can we reach a point where this singular monetization scheme like Patreon, like Coffee, like Twitch isn't as necessary and we actually go back, we revert to the age of webcomics where people have their things on their own platforms. They can use a PayPal link or some kind of singular donation button, which is now, instead of being a platform, is just a utility. Could you see us going back to that, basically? When you have a network, you usually have some competitors or some other alternative. So, uh, for example, uh, GitHub is very similar. It's a network for software developers to host their code, and it's a social network where you can see a, uh, what other people are creating and contributing. There are open source equivalents that are specifically made so that people can don't have to use this network and can have more private and secure, well, not necessarily more secure, but more private uh, instances of this. For example, GitLab, which a lot of companies use instead of using GitHub. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, you are 100% going to see alternatives like this with, with Patreon. There are going Co- to be coffee's other, already yeah, like coffee, the first one. No, so coffee's saying, already like, something like this. I guarantee you, you might even see some sort of an open source equivalent where uh, it's it's an instance of something like Patreon where you can automatically subscribe that you can host on available web technologies like AWS and it uses something like Stripe uh, yeah. to do something like this, right? I guarantee you something. I I would I don't even know if something like this exists already. It probably does. Mm-hmm. Um, and something like this could definitely exist in the future. Mm-hmm. So but the question is, will it ever become dominant, right? Like so GitHub is still dominant. Good, that's right? the good question. Um, I don't necessarily know if something like, I, to be frank, I don't, going back to your idea that Patreon isn't dominant and it's not intended to be dominant. It's only meant to be used by your super fans or your, your kind of niche that really loves your, your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I think that this this really plays into subscription fatigue where people, you know, might donate a dollar and they might want to do this for a couple of years, but this stuff keeps adding They're going to find right? more things and they're going to be stretched 20 ways. And they're going to exactly. say, oh, I started saying, oh, I just give people a little bit and now I'm paying $100 a month to 15 different people, right? People are already starting to become stretched 20 different ways if they're paying for Netflix, exactly. Hulu, uh, you know, Google Google Drive storage. I'm making that up. Um, <laughs> no one pays for that. No one pays for that. Um, I don't know what what other services are there. Oh, like Spotify. Spotify. Spotify is another one. Uh, Movie paying, Pass. Movie Pass. If they're paying for YouTube Red, and this is Hulu, Crunchyroll. Yeah. Anime. Shouts yeah. And but like, in terms of an end user's mental model, this subscription falls into those same buckets even though it might be more important to an independent content creator at the end of the day. And I don't know if that's a problem we can solve anytime soon. So basically what you're saying is there are going to be more splinters, but ultimately it's always going to be a smaller slice of the pie every iteration. And that ultimately we're not going to see something like a, like basically like a a further version of PayPal where it's one click and it's, it is, it is a centralized model in that you, you sign up on this website, whatever we call it. We'll just call it PayMe. You go on PayMe, you give them your credit card information. And now there's just a PayMe button on your individual website as opposed to the whole Patreon thing. You just click PayMe. So Can that take over? That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, yes, this sort of subscription model that Patreon is, is really introducing and really revolutionizing, I, 
it, it's taken off and I think it is going to take off. It's the future of content. And I think that it's, it's the only way for a content creator to make sustainable money uh, and stay afloat uh, in, in these times. In these whether, times when things whether, are so rapidly changing yeah. in the way that anything's monetized. Yeah. Whether that's that, that model flourishes specifically on Patreon or it exists as some sort of an open source tool, whether PayPal decides to enter a market like this and provide a tool to do this, whether Stripe or Square decide to do something like this as well. I think the market is ripe for competitors and I think that there's an opportunity here for other people to, to join. I think overall the business model works and it will continue to work. I don't. I, I. I. can't speak to whether Patreon will work as a whole. Another thing that we could see happening is YouTube introducing their own donation button, and that could be interesting too. They say, "Hey, we already have the whole audience here. Why even have to go to another website? We already have everything ingrained on here." Um, I'm frankly a little surprised they haven't done that yet, um, because it doesn't. You know, it's not going to take away from their existing advertising revenue. Um, they get a slice, obviously they'll still take their 5% and people aren't going to worry, you know, people aren't going to really complain about that because when, when you can have a donation button on YouTube where everyone is to see your content, you're not going to complain about them taking a marginal slice of the pie. And if they do that successfully, then they can basically cannibalize all these smaller people who are trying to disrupt them and disrupt the way that they are monetizing for their creators. So we could see the opposite of what I'm saying, instead of everything splintering off into smaller communities, sub-communities and subcultures that a singular, basically a huge um, distribution service integrates all the things you need and all the different monetization strategies that people would want to use into one platform. And people just stay on one website and everything just happens. I'm, I understand what you're saying. I think that I'm, I'm very skeptical of something like that happening because it, it places way too much power and way too much influence on that specific network or platform. Um, basically, yeah, the same problem we said before. It, it, it turns, let's say, hypothetically, let's say YouTube does this, right? It basically turns YouTube into your arbiter, your judge, your uh, your creator, and everything in between. And it, that's a huge problem. Cool. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add about the future of new media or how things are going to be funded? Um, I mean, I'm personally excited. I think that, I mean, the fact that we personally exist right now making this podcast is directly because of new media, because opportunities like this exist. Um, Yeah, I mean, not only normalization of funding, like the normalization of making things has happened because it's been so accessible and we see everyone around us constantly creating content now. Cool. Yeah, I mean, this this is a really fun topic for me because, you know, I, I'm really into it. I love Patreon and, and you know, I follow a lot of YouTubers and indie musicians and those kinds of people. And I'm interested in how they're going to stay afloat and they're going to continue to, you know, keep doing what they're doing. So it'll be interesting to, you know, continue to talk about and cover how this changes in the future. And we'll see. Jack Conti. I got a picture. I'm in it. Jamf 2. I'm like off on the side awkwardly, like standing at an angle. Yeah, I I think, you're I think hanging out with Natalie. You're like, hey. I think I cut like, you out. No, you didn't cut me out. But I'm on. So you and Nicholas are both like yeah. locked arms with them. And I'm just like off on the side dawdling. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that's hey, right. What's up, guys? That was my profile picture for like two years. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. That's a great night. Good stuff. All right. If Jack Conte listens to this, hi, dude. What's up? I like your beard. Don't shave it. Yeah. You're doing a good job. The beard and the glasses. It's it's a very distinct look, and you're yeah. you're killing it. Yeah. And all right, your Casey Neistat vlogs are better than his vlogs, and they're incredible. And 
haters gonna hate. Hell yeah.